This is Conducting Business, WQXR's program about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. Fall is a time of new beginnings in classical music. Dark halls reopen to the public and seasons get underway, but this year has not been a good one for American orchestras, for some American orchestras anyway. Major symphonies in Atlanta, Indianapolis, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and San Antonio are in contract disputes with their musicians as they try to eliminate big budget deficits. If they don't reach agreements soon, their seasons could be in jeopardy. We asked WQXR listeners what they thought about this, and I will put some of the responses we got to our three guests. They are Jesse Rosen, President and Chief Executive of the League of American Orchestras, who is in the studio with me. On the phone are Drew McManus, an orchestra consultant and blogger at Adaptistration.com, and Graydon Royce, music critic at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Jesse, I'm going to start with you. We did this unscientific online poll asking listeners what would fix troubled American orchestras, and by a wide margin, the largest number, 41%, said hire managers and boards with better business skills. So what is your reaction to that? Well, I I think it's fabulous that you invited your members to weigh in, and that's not the conclusion I would come to. Um, I think the biggest challenge orchestras face And the biggest remedy that I would suggest is that musicians, boards, and managements together share a responsibility for helping orchestras adapt to what is a completely changed business and cultural environment that they operate in. Now, Drew, another comment on our website from somebody named Carl said, managers and boards already have plenty of business skill. Often it is that business focus that gets orchestras working backwards and upside down in the first place. What we need are more managers and marketers who actually have musical skills. So what do you say to that? Well, I think that's a good example of one of the dynamic aspects behind why a poll is difficult to peg down specific uh, solutions. And in this case, uh, that's probably a good direction to move, and it's a good example of why you have arts managers as opposed to just business managers coming in running orchestras, but people who are trained and have experience and an understanding of the orchestra and what it does in its community. And what about the Milwaukee Symphony? Just yesterday in Milwaukee, they announced that the principal trumpet player is going to become the new executive director effective immediately. Graydon, you have your journalist's ear to the ground on this one? Yeah, Milwaukee is uh, interesting. It's a smaller uh, orchestra, about maybe half the size of Minnesota here. But still but with a great reputation. Still with a great reputation, and they uh, have Ador DeVart, who uh, also, uh, incidentally, is an artistic uh, partner at the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra up here. And Ado is a former music director at Minnesota, so he gives them a great uh, degree of ballast, I think. I don't know enough about the business skills of the trumpet player, but I think that's really interesting to have somebody who comes from a music background because they think in different ways. Jesse, it seems like the same group of managers has sort of made the rounds working at several of the orchestras that are now in financial trouble. Should orchestras maybe be looking outside the field of usual suspects for their executives? You know, I think the record on that is kind of mixed. I think there is a tremendous amount of field knowledge that is really essential in leading a symphony orchestra. The Um, The leadership structure is absolutely unique where you have a partnership between a music director and an chief executive who are co-equals reporting to a lay chair 
who typically has no experience in the symphony orchestra world. So you have a kind of distributed authority, which creates a very complex leadership arrangement, very different than opera companies, theater companies, museums, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot to be said for uh, bringing in people with experience in the field, but by the same token, our field is very much needing to look outside and to look beyond itself for the perspectives and frameworks that are playing out in other sectors of our society. So in some sense, if you can find somebody with the right mix of the outside perspective, fresh view, with the acumen to lead in this very complex environment, it can actually work. Graydon, right now both the Minnesota Orchestra and the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra are asking their musicians to take big pay cuts. Minnesota is proposing reducing the average salary from $135,000 a year to 89000 and St. Paul is proposing going from $74,000 a year to $62,500. Are they also proposing cuts like that for management or, dare I say it, for conductors? Yeah, right. Well, that's... <laughs> That's the uh, really um, vexing issue, or one of the vexing issues here is that, no, they haven't uh, proposed that. They had, in Minnesota, uh, the music director took a 10% cut in, uh, I think it was 2008, possibly 2009. The executive director also took a cut, and so did the senior managers. But those numbers then went back. They reverted to their old numbers in 2010. So uh, if I'm a musician, I'm wondering, okay, you're asking me to share the pain here, then show me the pain uh, in the senior ranks. They have cut administrative staff, but that I don't think is quite the same as the um, people at the top. Right. That probably just means lower paid workers are now being asked to do twice the amount of work. Yeah, exactly. And those are the lucky ones that still have a job. Jesse, so that's, what what is your opinion of all of this? Well, you know, I, I think the concept of shared ownership, shared sacrifice really has to be an imperative in working through these these challenges. And to the best of our, our knowledge, um, we've seen very substantial reduction in administrative headcount as well as substantial uh, salary rollbacks as well. And that that has tended to be the norm and not the exception. Graydon, I have to ask how this is even happening in the Twin Cities because they've always had the reputation of being such an arts mecca. Well, that's a really good question. I've been thinking about that lately. And uh, one of the great questions, I think, for um, the Minnesota and the St. Paul uh, orchestras is whether this is a uh, permanent situation, a financial crisis that uh, they see looming for years and years to come, or whether this is a cyclical uh, issue, or whether this is just a period of time where they're saying, we may, we're not saying that we're unable to pay you, we're just saying that we're unwilling to pay you. We are unwilling to pay you at these current rates, and we feel that it's important for the future of the business to make these changes. These orchestras are not necessarily crying poverty. In Minnesota, you've got an orchestra that has a $110 million uh, campaign going uh, on right now that they've raised $97 million for, $50 million of that is going to renovate the orchestra hall, and then $30 million is for artistic in, uh, initiatives, and then $30 million to beef up the endowment. So those, you, see, you see those kinds of things, and you wonder, um, the orchestra is not going under anytime soon. It seems to be more of a business decision than necessarily a reflection of anything that's wrong in the arts community here. 
A commenter on our website named Bernie thinks that expensive conductors and soloists also are a big problem. He wrote, it's easy to harp on union stagehands and orchestra musicians, but how about the big star cellists, violinists, and sopranos who, as he says, rake in 30000 40000 or even $70,000 for a single night's performance? What is your response to that, Drew? Um, the conductor issue, you know, one of the things I do at the blog um, is on an annual basis track changes in CEO, music director, and up until last year, bass musician compensation. And for about the last decade, maybe closer to eight or nine years perhaps, um, between each of those stakeholders, the one that grew the most over that period of time was CEOs followed by music directors, and then concertmasters were a little ahead of bass musician. Uh, increases during that period of time. So although music directors certainly have enjoyed increases, they haven't been the single greatest stakeholder to improve over the last decade. Jesse, please, because the the point here actually is that orchestra conductors are making most of many of them in the area of a million dollars a year, soloists getting as much as an orchestra player's yearly salary for a single performance. You know, actually, I wanted to go back to something that uh, Graydon had commented on before, but I'll come back to your question on the table now. And, you know, Graydon went through, in describing the campaign, he mentioned the investment in uh, renovating the hall, in building the endowment, and actually, I can't remember what the third third piece of that was. but Artistic initiatives. Artistic initiatives, right. So, yeah. you know, orchestra leadership has options with respect to how they allocate what are very scarce resources. And so an investment in endowment is an investment in sustainability. In other words, it's building the capacity for a steady income stream. Um, And I think most musicians would agree that a large endowment is an essential component to sustainability. The second notion about the investment in the hall, one of the things that we know about audiences today is that halls really matter. And the ability of a hall to be comfortable accommodating to the types of experiences people want to have at concerts is really a driver. And we know this from recent research that's been done on audience attendees, and we see the impact that concert halls that are created for maximum satisfaction and enjoyment of the public make a big difference in audience participation. You know, two obvious examples, the new Frank Gehry building in Miami at the New World Symphony which is designed with both transparency so people can see in and then the capacity to project outwards, live simulcasts for people. So that costs a lot of money, but it's an investment in the audience, in the public, in ensuring that people who love music have a way of experiencing it in in a way that gives them satisfaction. So for an orchestra to invest in that, uh, to me, seems like a very legitimate choice. And of course, managing is about trade-offs. And the management in Minnesota is obviously making decisions about what they're trading off. But so far, nobody has answered the question (laughs) about the fact that orchestra conductors are making a lot of money a year and that some soloists are bringing in as much as your orchestra musician makes in a year. I guess nobody wants to touch that one. Well, I mean... well, I, I guess I'm, a, I'm not terribly clear market, then on what the question is. I mean, well, the question is: Should soloists and conductors, if they want to have 
orchestras to perform with, with good musicians in back of them, should they be considering taking cuts in what they're getting paid? Oh, absolutely. I think so. Uh, It's that shared pain concept. And if you don't have all stakeholders, including those like guest soloists who are kind of outside the immediate stakeholdership, uh, participating in that equally and fairly, because I'll have to say I'm someone who works on both sides of the fence. I work with both managers and I work with musicians. And I know where money gets moved and hidden and shuffled in contracts and the rest of it. So there does have to come a point in time where everyone drops some pretense and say, look, we're not going to do these things that we normally do to kind of hide where money goes. And the transparency is going to increase, and we really will legitimately and genuinely share these sacrifices. And I guess nobody really wants to be the one to bell the cat and ask these people for for those cuts. Graydon, I want to get back to something Jesse was saying about the listener experience. Andrew B. from Lower Marion, Pennsylvania, wrote on our website, younger listeners don't have the patience or desire to be one of 2,000 or so passive faces listening to a rather formalistic Beethoven symphony in a dark concert hall. Orchestras may have to provide different settings for performances. Do you think orchestras would attract more young people by using technology and being more visual? Well, I never predict the future other than I'm going home tonight. But the absolutely, this is one of the things that's going on in the orchestra world that your listener has really put a finger on, and that is delivery systems and the ways that people listen to music. Minnesota and St. Paul both put uh, concerts on their websites uh, for download. And they're looking for different venues. I mean, you know, do you go? Do you take stuff into a club? Do you take stuff into a, a smaller venue? You know, Jesse talked about the uh, new orchestra hall here. Um, they've proposed to put in large rooms that are not concert halls, but can be used for smaller concerts or you know smaller events. These are really key things that they believe will somehow change that experience because, you know, the listener is right. The model of young people to going going to um, a big concert hall is just not there anymore. The Baltimore Symphony just announced today that it is partnering with Parsons New School for Design to reimagine, as they say, traditional concert dress for musicians. Drew, do you think that's going to help? Uh, it will have some impact. Um, I had a project that was overseas, actually, in a Doha Cutter, putting together their National Philharmonic Program, and that was actually one of the first steps they did in designing the ensemble, uh, was going to a design school as part of their university system and having them actually design new concert attire, for the women especially. The men, they unfortunately didn't move in that direction. Um, But the women's uh, outfits turned out, I think, quite nicely and was something that uh, each individual player had input on, so they ended up with something that was useful not just on stage but also was very attractive and projected the image that they wanted to build. That seems kind of sexist because I would the men are so uniform in their dress and the women have actually had more leeway. They have, but boy, if you want to have some fun sometime, get a bunch of women musicians together and ask them about concert dress. <laughs> I'm not going there. Okay, past polls and podcasts at WQXR have shown that even suggesting something like Tweet seats where patrons can be sending out electronic messages about the program during it or applauding between movements 
just provokes outrage from some classical music listeners. Jesse, are orchestras damned if they do and damned if they don't? To some extent, that's accurate. There's bound to be some clash around this, but the fact that orchestras are wrestling with this and acknowledging that they have to play to multiple segments of the audience that are wanting different things is dead on. And I I think for the most part, they're not finding outrage and people being incensed. And, you know, we've seen this with new music, which for a long time was a uh, you know, barrier for many traditional audiences. The receptivity to new music has now grown. The notion of performers communicating directly with the audience from the stage, before the concert, in the concert, there's greater acceptance of that now. So there's going to be a messy period, but, you know, it goes with the territory of change. Drew, do you think the actual culture of orchestras needs to change? They've been criticized for being stuck in tradition. To a degree, it's somewhat self-inflicted, but to another degree, I think one of the things Jesse mentioned is very apt in that concert hall environment, the physical environment. In a lot of cases, there's only so many things that you can do. There's not a lot of innovation you can put into place because seats are seats, ceilings are ceilings, and walls are walls. The tweet seat thing is kind of an interesting idea because you have you can work within inside that model a bit by quartering off sections so that it uh, activity doesn't impact other patrons' listening enjoyment, so on and so forth. But Drew, just to push back a little bit on what's possible in, inside the concert hall, again, going back to the, the New World Symphony Hall, which is designed with, I think, five different stage platforms. Mm-hmm. And so that permits, Michael does these deep, deep dive programs, three hours of Schubert, And what you experience in the audience is you get to hear chamber music on small platforms. You hear full orchestra on the stage. You hear a vocal soloist on a mini platform. So as you're going through, you know, the multiple genres of a single composer, you're also visually moving through the space and controlling the sense of intimacy or the sense of largeness. And uh, it's a very dynamic experience. And so I think that kind of reimagining what is possible uh, artistically and have have the physical capacity to be variable and creative that way, I, I think is a, is a tremendous asset and it's been demonstrated to work now at the uh, New Hall in Miami. Well, sure. We, the trick is you just have to have that capacity to begin with. If you're an orchestra that doesn't have that kind of hall, you either have to do the capital campaign to be able to rebuild something or uh, design something inside what you have. But well, it's, and it's not what about thinking outside the hall? Place. Alan Gilbert just took the New York Philharmonic to the Park Avenue Armory. Right. Um, you're well, not sure. tied necessarily to your hall. Well, and, and even in Avery Fisher Hall, which, you know, appears to be a traditional shoebox, very constraining. Alan did the, the Ligeti Le Grand Macabre, and, and half of the action took place in, in the audience. And the uh, actors were, you know, moving among the audience, interacting with them. So... Even in the most traditional space, there are ways to use it that really change the dynamic of the relationship between the performer and the audience in in a way that makes it closer, more intimate, more immediate. If I could break in with just one idea, and that is that I think that's what's happening in the orchestra world is very similar to many of the great cultural institutions. I mean, I work in the newspaper business. And the newspaper business, uh, I I don't think it's any secret, has gone through uh, enormous changes over the last seven or eight years based on changes in social needs and based on how readers uh, want their news. Uh, Older readers tell us they want the newspaper just like they've always had it. 
and younger readers aren't reading the newspaper and they want information in some other form and a lot of times that comes through um, many splintered sources. And I think that the orchestras are in much the same situation. You don't have these kind of monolithic institutions anymore that uh, can rule in a community. And they're just going through some really vigorous changes in that regard. That's a, a very good point. But I'd also like to ask you, large orchestras in Los Angeles, San Francisco, St. Louis, Chicago, Boston, they're not in trouble. In fact, they're doing pretty well. Is there something about those orchestras that can serve as a model for the ones in Minneapolis and St. Paul or in Atlanta? Uh, well, in Los Angeles, you could you you could own the Hollywood Bowl, and that would help you out. Um, <laughs> or you could get a you know a guy like uh, Dudamel, um, who's a national celebrity, and, and and that would help. Some of the other orchestras. You know, we'll see what happens uh, in in the coming years in terms of uh, what their finances do. I still don't think that Minnesota is going to uh, undergo the kind of cuts that they are talking about right now in salary. They will end up with a a reduced uh, contract. Some of that is because they made kind of ridiculous assumptions. The management, I think, made ridiculous assumptions a few years ago on what their endowment was going to do over the course of a contract that's just ending this year that was... Uh, pretty rich, but you know, you know, I think that they will come out with a much lesser contract, but uh, one that will allow them to move on. Jesse, the Philadelphia Orchestra's recent bankruptcy reorganization included some debts being forgiven, rent reduction at the Kimmel Center where they perform. Can that bankruptcy serve as a model for some of the orchestras that are now in trouble? Bankruptcy is never, ever a desirable path. Obviously uh, not. But, <laughs> but it seems to have worked in Philadelphia and putting them back on there on an even keel. Well, it was a strategy that the board and management decided to take. And I think time will tell. But certainly, you know, I think everyone is pleased to see the orchestra, you know, throughout this whole period continue to play. They continue to play like the angels that they are. And, you know, it's an exquisite ensemble. And also throughout the bankruptcy and afterwards, the orchestras continue to uh, launch very important new artistic initiatives. So I think, you know, as, as I look at these instances, to me, you know, the question is not so much about how big, how small are we going to be, how much are we going to pay. The question is what kind of an organization are we going to be, who are we going to serve, what kind of value will we create in our communities. I'm sure that we are all hoping that it won't come to the kind of devastating strike that took place last year at the Detroit Symphony. So I'd like to know from all of you what your predictions are for the various orchestra disputes around the country now. Drew, I'll start with you. Well, San Antonio is a good example from the standpoint that I think it's a little overblown, uh, In even though they're certainly at a contentious point right now. I don't think they're in a situation that's going to be so dire that they're not going to find a solution here sooner than later. Um, situations like Atlanta and Indianapolis, I think, are good to focus on because they seem to be really driven as much by philosophy as by uh, immediate economic concerns. For example, in Indianapolis, the one thing I'm still rather puzzled about is the decision to cancel concerts when it's never really been confirmed whether or not they have cash on hand to pay for those. That doesn't make a lot of sense on a lot of levels. It it hurts your patrons, it hurts the negotiations, and it looks more like a leverage tool than something else. Jesse? Okay, um, I'll I'll do two. Um, 
I'll do Atlanta, and what I'll say about Atlanta is that uh, I know Colin Williams, who chairs our negotiating committee. We teach together in one of our seminars. Colin is a guy who is deeply, deeply committed to the success of the Atlanta Symphony. And he's smart, he's rational, he's got his head screwed on right. And I know Stanley, and I know Stanley has a deep, deep commitment to the success of that orchestra and a conviction about the importance of the musicians in that orchestra. They will figure it out. And like any settlement, you know, everyone's going to be unhappy about, you know, some of what happens, but they're going to make a deal. The second one I want to talk about is one you didn't mention, which is Pittsburgh, which settled the concessionary agreement last summer in which uh, the musicians took a 10% cut for two years. And I spoke to both the CEO and the head of the orchestra committee to ask them how they got to this agreement five months early. And what they both said, because they both told me the exact same story, was, number one, the negotiation wasn't that hard. They said they started out with three things that they agreed on. Number one, maintain the quality of the orchestra. Number two, uh, maintain fiscal uh, health and stability. And number three, do not interrupt service to the community. Those were the parameters for the negotiation. And I mention this only because we're still talking about exceptions of these ones that are very extreme right now. We are got 400 professional orchestras, and many of them, most of them, in fact, work this stuff out. Graydon, you're on the ground there in the Twin yeah. Cities, so I'm going to give you the final word. All right. I would say that St. Paul will probably make a deal. Uh, I think they have a proposal on the table um, that's the framework. I don't think it's going to be exactly what it is right now, obviously, but uh, I think they have the framework for uh, a deal. Minnesota is going to be tougher. Um, I think the, um, the musicians there, uh, this is the first time they've really been in an alley fight, and um, I, I think that they're taking it pretty hard. They're confused because they feel they've been beat up um, at the same time they've reached these lofty aspirations of the last few years. So there, uh, the emotion is going to be a lot tougher to deal with. Um, I think that they'll eventually work something out, but I've been in a lot in, in, involved in a lot of labor negotiations uh, at the Star Tribune here, and I know that there is a big dynamic within the negotiation itself that takes on a life of its own that can have an effect, and I can't predict that. But from the outside, I would say that they will probably get somewhere to make an agreement. I think there's too much at stake for both sides. However, if something happens within the society of that negotiation, um, it, it could be difficult in Minnesota. Well, thank you all for joining us for a very good discussion. Thanks, Neil. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This has been Conducting Business, WQXR's podcast on the classical music industry. Our guests were Jesse Rosen, President and Chief Executive of the League of American Orchestras, Drew McManus, blogger at adaptistration.com, and Graydon Royce, the music critic at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Brian Wise is our producer and Bill O'Neill is our engineer. You can subscribe to Conducting Business on iTunes and feel free to comment on our website, wqxr.org. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thank you for listening.